Why did Fanny do this? The judge would like to know. The judge would like to help her. The judge says, Now, Fanny, tell me all about it. All about it, all about it. Fanny's stoical face stares at the floor. If Fanny had words. But Fanny has no words. Something heavy in her heart, something vague and heavy in her thought these are all that Fanny has. Let the policewoman's records show. Three years ago Fanny came to Chicago from a place called Plano. Red-cheeked and black-haired, vivid-eyed, and like an ear of ripe corn dropped in the middle of State and Madison streets, Fanny came to the city. Ah, the lonely city, with its crowds and its lonely lights. The lonely buildings busy with a thousand lonelinesses. People laughing and hurrying along, people eager-eyed for something. Summer parks and streets white with snow, the city moon like a distant window, pretty gewgaws in the stores these are a part of Fanny's story. The judge wants to know. Fanny's eyes look up. A dog takes a kick like this, with eyes like this, large, dumb and brimming with pathos. The dog's master is a mysterious and inexplicable dispenser of joys and sorrows. His caresses and his beatings are alike mysterious, their reasons seldom to be discerned, never fully understood. Sometimes in this court where the sinners are hailed, where poised and prim and particular, society stately sits, his honor has a moment of confusion. Eyes lift themselves to him, eyes dumb and brimming with pathos. Eyes stare out of sordid faces, evil faces, wasted faces, and say something not admissible as evidence. I say, I don't know, I don't know. What is it all about? These are not to be confused with the eyes that plead shrewdly for mercy, with eyes that feign dramatic naivetes, and offer themselves like primping little penitents to his honor. His honor knows them fairly well. And understands them. They are eyes still bargaining with life. But Fanny's eyes. Yes, the judge would like to know. A vagueness comes into his precise mind. He half hears the familiar accusation that the policeman drones, a terribly matter-of-fact drone. Another raid on a suspected flat. Routine, routine. Evil has its eternal root in the cities. A tireless Satan, bored with the monotony of his role, a tireless justice, bored with the routine of tears and pleadings, lies and guilt. There is no story in all this. Once his honor, walking home from a banquet, looked up and noticed the stars. Meaningless, immutable stars. There was nothing to be seen by looking at them. They were mysteries to be dismissed. Like the mystery of Fanny's eyes. Meaningless, immutable eyes. They do not bargain. Yet the world stares out of them. The face looks dumbly up at a judge. No defense. The policeman's drone has ended and Fanny says nothing. This is difficult. Because his honor knows suddenly there is a defense. A monstrous defense. Since there are always two sides to everything. Yes, what is the other side? His honor would like to know. Tell it, Fanny. About the crowds, streets, buildings, lights, about the whirligig of loneliness, 
about the Humpty Dumpty clutter of longings. And then explain about the summer parks and the white snow and the moon window in the sky. Throw in a poignantly ironical dissertation on life, on its uncharted aimlessness, and speak like Sherwood Anderson about the desires that stir in the heart. Speak like Remy de Gourmand and Dostoevsky and Stevie Crane, like Schopenhauer and Dreiser and Isaiah, speak like all the great questioners whose tongues have wagged and whose hearts have burned with questions. His honor will listen bewilderedly and, perhaps, only perhaps, understand for a moment the dumb pathos of your eyes. As it is, you were found, as the copper who reads the newspapers puts it, in a suspected flat. A violation of Section 2012 of the City Code. Thirty days in the Bastille, Fanny. Unless his honor is feeling good. These eyes lifted to him will ask him questions on his way home from a banquet some night. How old are you? Twenty. Make it twenty-two, his honor smiles. And you have nothing to say? About how you happen to get into this sort of thing. You look like a good girl. Although looks are often deceiving. I went there with him, says Fanny. And she points to a beetle-browed citizen with an unshaven face. A quaint Don Juan, indeed. Ever see him before? A shake of the head. Plain case. And yet his honor hesitates. His honor feels something expand in his breast. Perhaps he would like to rise and holding forth his hand utter a famous plagiarism go and sin no more. He chews a pen and sighs, instead. I'll give you another chance, he says. The next time it'll be jail. Keep this in mind. If you're brought in again, no excuses will go. Call the next case. Now one can follow Fanny. She walks out of the courtroom. The street swallows her. Nobody in the crowds knows what has happened. Fanny is anybody now. Still, one may follow. Perhaps something will reveal itself, something will add an illuminating touch to the incident of the courtroom. There is only this. Fanny pauses in front of a drugstore window. The crowds clutter by. Fanny stands looking, without interest, into the window. There is a little mirror inside. The city tumbles by. The city is interested in something vastly complicated. Staring into the little mirror, Fanny sighs and powders her nose. The fog tiptoes into the streets. It walks like a great cat through the air and slowly devours the city. The office buildings vanish, leaving behind thin pencil lines and smoke blurs. The pavements become isolated, low-roofed corridors. Overhead the electric signs whisper enigmatically, and the window lights dissolve. The fog thickens till the city disappears. High up, where the mists thin into a dark, sulfurous glow, roof bubbles float. The great cat's work is done. It stands balancing itself on the heads of people and arches its back against the vanished buildings. I walk along thinking about the way the streets look and arranging adjectives in my mind. In the heavy mist people appear detached. They no longer seem to belong to a pursuit in common. 
usually the busy part of the city, is like the exposed mechanism of some monstrous clock. And people scurry about losing themselves in cogs and springs and levers. But now the monstrous clock is almost hidden. The stores and offices and factories that form the mechanism of this clock are buried behind the fog. The cat has eaten them up. Hidden within the mist the cogs still turn and the springs unwind. But for the moment they seem non-existent. And the people drifting hurriedly by in the fog seem as if they were not going and coming from stores, offices and factories. As if they were solitaries hunting something in the labyrinths of the fog. Yes, we are all lost and wandering in the thick mists. We have no destinations. The city is without outlines. And the drift of figures is a meaningless thing. Figures that are going nowhere and coming from nowhere. A swarm of supernumeraries who are not in the play. Who saunter, dash, scurry, hesitate in search of a part in the play. This is a curious illusion. I stop and listen to music. Overhead a piano is playing and a voice singing. A song-boosting shop above Monroe and State Streets. A ballad of the cheap cabarets. Yet, because it is music, it has a mystery in it. The fog pictures grow charming. There is an idea in them now. People are detached little decorations etched upon a mist. The cat has eaten up the monstrous clock, and people have rid themselves of their routine, which was to tumble and scurry among its cogs and levers. They are done with life, with buying and selling, and with the perpetual errand. And they have become a swarm of little ornaments. Men and women denuded of the city. Their outlines posture quaintly in the mist. Their little faces say, the clock is gone. There is nothing any more to make us alive. So we have become our unconnected selves. Beside me in the fog a man stands next to a tall paper rack. I remember that this is the rack where the out-of-town papers are on sale. The papers are rolled up and thrust like rows of little white dolls in the rack. I wonder that this should be a newspaper stand. It looks like almost anything else in the fog. A pretty girl emerges from the background of fog. She talks to the man next to the rack. Have you a Des Moines newspaper? she asks. The man is very businesslike. He fishes out a newspaper and sells it. At the sight of its headlines the girl's eyes light up. It is as if she had met a very close friend. She will walk along feeling comforted now. Chicago is a stranger. Its fog-hidden buildings and streets are strangers, and its crowds crisscrossing everywhere are worse than strangers. But now she has Des Moines under her arm. Des Moines is a companion that will make the fog seem less lonely. Later she will sit down in a hotel room and read of what has happened in Des Moines buildings and Des Moines streets. These will seem like real happenings, whereas the happenings that the Chicago papers print seem like unrealities. This is Dearborn Street now. Dark and cozy. People are no longer decorations, but intimate friends. When it is light and one can see the cogs of the monstrous clock go round, and the springs unwind one thinks of people as a part of this mechanism.
And so people grow vague in one's mind and unhuman, or only half-human. But now that the mechanism is gone, people stand out with an insistent humanness. People sitting on lunch counter stools, leaning over coffee cups. People standing behind store counters. People buying cigars and people walking in and out of office buildings. They are very friendly. Their tired faces smile, or at least look somewhat amused and interested. They are interested in the fog and in the fact that one cannot see three feet ahead. And their faces say to each other, here we are, all alike. The city is only a make-believe. It can go away but we still remain. We are much more important than the big buildings.